You are a God of unsearchable uh, greatness, and you are a God of unsearchable kindness to those who trust in you. So, Lord, we are so grateful for the chance to lift up our voices to you. It'll be our forever occupation to sing how great you are. And so, for a moment in time, we get to feel the, in some small way, the reality of heaven kind of pushed down into earth, where we join in the anthem of the angels. And we sing, worthy are you, O Lord, to receive honor and glory, dominion, power, all of it's yours. Our life is yours. Everything we have, everything we are is from you, through you, to you. So do you be the glory. We need you. Uh, Every moment we need you, every time we open your word, we need the the gift of your spirit to illumine to us uh, what you want us to see and hear. For the things that are difficult for us to hear, I pray that you give us humility to respond. For the things that are a delight for us to hear, I pray that you give us the gratitude to sing praises. And we thank you for your word. We thank you for this time we get to be together. And we pray that you'd move now through your spirit, through the preaching of your word, that you'd help me to be helpful and a conduit of grace to your people whom I love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go ahead have a seat. Good morning, everybody. Such a joy to sing with you and worship with you this morning. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, and look forward to being able to do that. You can grab your Bibles, and we're going to go to Second Peter. We'll be in chapter 2. We're going to be finishing up chapter 2. Um, just a couple brief comments. Uh, I just want to kind of get this out there. There's some of you that walked in this morning a little bit disturbed that Christmas decorations are out. And I just want you to just kind of just be still your soul. Um, we had to decide between putting them away after the women's night or just keeping them up for a week, which, uh, but they're up, so understand why. Um, and I also want to say, like, as you, as you operate as family, you begin to look like each other. So um, Chris and I are wearing virtually the same outfit. Daniel rightfully put, he's got the Burgaw version. He's got boots and jeans on the bottom, and I've got the Wilmington version. And then Mackie and Kevin have the same sweater on this morning. So looking good, fellas. Anyways, but good to be together. Good to be together as family. And um, as we study through, continue our study through Second Peter, uh, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, uh, Pastor Chris opened the word with us last week, uh, looking at the reality and the sweetness of adoption and sharing through the lens of his own personal story with Jen and um, I mentioned a couple weeks ago, this section of Second Peter, I'll, I'll be honest with you, has surprised me in how difficult it is and has been to preach, because uh, it's a very, in some ways, a very dark chapter that speaks of judgment a whole lot. And so there will be some things, like the way some of these verses and truths will fall on us, they'll fall with like a degree of difficulty, because we just don't like to talk about judgment. Um, but Peter wasn't afraid to talk about judgment here. And so one of the ways I find myself kind of preaching this text is a little bit uh, abnormal for, for me. I'm, I'm wired a little more linearly, and so, but this is going to feel a little bit more like concentric circles. Um, a couple weeks ago, we started looking at marks of false teachers. And so we, we took a look at some of the things that stand out about their character, how they, they come in disguise. They're not necessarily coming with pitchfork and horns, that they're, they're, they're disguised as angels of light. 
We see how they're, they're given to sensuality and not sanctification and selfishness. And we're going to see this morning just a couple brief moments about their pride. So we kind of start with that bigger circle, just the marks of false teachers. And we're going to hit this morning kind of the, the second circle I'll describe as the, the sure judgment of God for false teachers and the unrighteous. It's a difficult thing to preach. It's heavy. But it's just all over this text. I can't escape it. And then the innermost circle we'll get to next week, which is the ultimate kind of culminating moment of the judgment of God and the rescue of his people known as the day of the Lord, which is referred to in multiple different ways, the day of judgment, the day of God, the day of the Lord. And it's a mega theme in the Old Testament. It's a significant thing we'll deal with next week. And how we see the patience of God as a form of his mercy toward the world. That he, he desires for all men to come to repentance. If you're in this room and you don't consider yourself a Christian, I count it a privilege to be able to give to you the greatest news I could ever provide. That you can be right with God through no work of your own, but through the Lord Jesus. And we're going to take communion together. And time is kind of working against me, so I want to go ahead and get started. Um, you can grab your Bibles. I think it's page 958. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one in the chair. Hopefully there's one around you. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, take that as your own. It's our gift to you. Uh, let's start by reading 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. We'll read this together. This is God's word for us. Verse 17, it says, These false teachers are waterless springs and mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. What I want to do just briefly is just comment on a couple different marks, additional marks of false teachers. So we see from this moment and then early in chapter, earlier in chapter 2, false teachers are clothed in pride. So if you're thinking to yourself, like, why do I need to know about false teaching? Well, they abound, unfortunately. But then I also mentioned a couple weeks ago, there's a way in which the, t the teaching of false teachers has a residue associated with it that, that can kind of stick to us. And even unknowingly, we can kind of co-opt false teaching subtly into our perspective on the world and various things. And so we have to be mindful of the way in which false teaching takes shape. And we see that they're clothed in pride. Verse 18, these, these are speaking loud boasts of folly. Jude 16 echoes that they're loud mouth boasters. They're bold in their boasting. If you go back to verse 10 in chapter 2, it says, these are those who despise authority. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme even the angels. Whereas angels, the greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. So false teachers despise, hate, and avoid authority. The pride of false teachers and those who follow them will cause them to puff up their chest even against angels. 
seeking to be greater in power even than the angels. In Jude 8, yet in like manner these people also relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. False teachers aren't appropriately humbled by things greater than them. And you might have seen some of these before. They have an inflated view of self. False teachers are self-assured in ways that are inappropriate and inconsistent with being a creature. They talk about themselves a lot. They're the hero of every story and illustration. They're quick to provide their resume and competencies and diminish the reputation of other people. Maybe this is a right way to sum up their character. They absorb accolades but avoid accountability. And this is very different than what we see in 1 Peter chapter 5. We, we looked at 1 Peter months ago, kind of as a precursor to getting in 2 Peter. And one of the things we talked about was just the the, the value and the character of submission in the life of the believer. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter says this, says, you young men likewise submit to your elders, like live a life submitted to leadership. And for you young men, it's, it's good to be reminded there's a way in which when we're young, we rail against authority. And that's in some ways not c- completely unique to being young, but it's accentuated when you're young. And we have, to, we have to learn how to submit ourselves to authority if we're going to learn how to submit ourselves to the authority, namely God in our lives and Jesus over our lives. So false teachers are clothed in pride. They're bold in their boasting. False teachers only look free, but they will ultimately stay entangled. That's what we see in verses 19 through 22 And this whole dog returned to its own vomit. Let me just kind of summarize a couple of things here. One of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago uh, is that, that these false teachers, they, they truly are wolves in sheep's clothing. They look the part, maybe for a season. And some of the things they say have a ring of truth, but when you dig just below the surface, you find out that they're actually lies. But ultimately what will happen in the final judgment is that their true colors will show. Their true character will, will be revealed. In 1 John chapter. 2, verse 19, John says it this way. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. And like a dog that returns to eat the very thing it just threw up, I know it's nasty. This is, this is a good picture. False teachers give the appearance of speaking life, but yet they ultimately will turn back to the thing that's actually death and corruption. And there's a temptation here, and I preach this text in this way, and I don't think it's wrong. I think it's probably a secondary meaning. It's good for us to be reminded as believers never to go back to the things that God tells us are a source of death and corruption. Because you can look at, if you ever had the experience of your dog eating its own vomit, you're like, what are you doing? You just threw that up. That's terrible. Like, why would you eat that? Your body just said it's not good for you. But yet we can be guilty of that spiritually. Like we abandon the source of life to try to find life in places where only death is promised, right? So that's a little bit of the sense here too for believers and ultimately will prove to be the case for those who actually don't belong to God at all that they in fact have returned to the very thing that doesn't provide life. False teachers return to try to find life in places where only death and decay are promised. Like a pig temporarily clean, they'll have an appearance of spiritual life and godliness, but they're void of the power and the presence of Christ. 
and they will return to live in the mire of unrighteousness. And Jesus talked about this, the parable of the sowers, one of the more well-known parables. It talks about the seed of the Word of God and how it falls on the hearts of different people, types of people. There will be some who respond with a sense of joy to the Word of God as it's laid out and preached and falls upon their minds and their hearts. They receive it with joy, but these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. He goes on to say, and as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So like a pig, temporarily clean, looking like it's cleaned up and washed up and has life, ultimately they'll prove not to belong to God by returning to unrighteousness. And Peter, again, in this, this section is maybe in a more subtle way like he did in the first chapter commending believers. And this is a difficult thing for us to hear because there's a deep assurance we get in chapter 1 of the work of God and calling his people to himself by his grace. But then he gives us this picture as like add diligence and effort to your salvation to confirm that you belong to God. Live a life that gives testimony to the fact that you belong to him, that you're new in Christ, that you have power that's foreign to this world. Live your life in that way. This is in a similar way he's drawn attention to the same thing. So I'm going to transition now to talk about just the the certainty of God's judgment. Let me just kind of preface it with a couple things. Peter wants Christians, it seems, to not only be aware of what false teachers look like, but he's also seeking to protect the people of God from the same judgment that false teachers are sure to receive from God. He says, I want you to stay away from these things. I want you to be protected from these things. And this section isn't going to win any awards for political correctness in our age. It just won't. But it still preaches because it's God's Word. 35 verses, chapter 2, verse 1, through chapter 3, verse 13. 35 verses, 16 of them directly state in one way or the other the judgment of God. That's pretty substantial. When you see reputation, repetition in any section of Scripture, you have to kind of take notice. Like God's trying to say something really clearly. All those who have ears to hear, let them hear sort of moment. So 50% of the verses in this section speak of judgment. And so as I've been wrestling personally, like this has been a wrestle for me. And we'll get to the good news in a little bit. But there's a way in which like the judgment of God has to, has to preface or lead the way good news and the relief of the gospel right? And to say it this way, maybe, is like being confronted by the certainty of judgment leads us to the comfort of God's mercy. So when you feel a little bit like rattled by like the the depth and, and darkness of the judgment of God, let it be to you like an usher that leads you into the presence of the mercy of God. And I hope that's what we'll be able to do this morning because mercy triumphs over judgment, as James says in his letter. So I want, I want to go back in the chapter. So this is where the circles come about. I'm not taking this literally. I want you to go back to verse 4 in chapter 2. And there's three layers of this sure judgment that's given through the lens of three Old Testament pictures and stories. And the first one is this. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. 
So that's the first thing. God didn't spare angels. Angels sinned. God cast them into hell, committed them to these chains of gloomy darkness. There's some debate a little bit on like Isaiah 14 for some would be this picture of Satan's rebellion against God. Then maybe the king of Babylon is like a picture, but Satan's the ultimate picture of like, I'm going to ascend to the most high to be like God. But it's clear that there's some sort of rebellion in the heavenly realms where we now have evil angels and good angels. And so Peter's depicting this prideful rebellion of angels against God himself, and the pride of these false teachers actually follows the pattern of fallen angels. In Jude chapter 6, it says, angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, misled the people. Here's one thing that stood out to me thinking through this, this rebellion of angels, like they, they rail against where God has placed them, wanting to b- become more than they are. Their supposed freedom from their God-given position and their rebellion from their proper placement in God's order actually led them to this fraudulent freedom. So they rail against God as their authority and the position that God has given them And what happens is that their freedom from God and his authority actually puts them in slavery to darkness. So the very thing that they sought as freedom winds up putting them in chains. And that'll preach, I think, for us, right? That's what we do. Like we we rail against the authority of God in our lives, seeking to find freedom in other places And any source of freedom that doesn't involve God will only be bondage. Every single time, without exception. But they're chained there. And wouldn't you know it, just like them, we're still seeking fraudulent freedom that only leads us to bondage, right? And you may be fighting against the authority of God in your life, seeking to loose yourself from his leadership. But if you seek to be free from God, you only find yourself in slavery to self and to sin. But God didn't spare the angels. And Peter goes on to use the same wording. In verse 5, look there with me. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought about a flood upon the world of the ungodly. Pause. So Genesis 6 through 9 is a worldwide Flood. The ancient world of the ungodly was flooded, and no one was spared except Noah and his family. So just a couple brief sections from Genesis. Genesis 6, 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Genesis 6, 11 and 12. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. The earth is filled with violence through them, through all men. It doesn't get a whole lot much more pervasive than that. The wickedness was great. The evil was constant. It was deep. It was wide. It was abundant. It was severe. In the days of Noah, the ancient world are not unlike our current day. It's actually what Jesus foretold. In many places, Matthew 24, he says, but as the days of Noah were, so also will the days be during the coming of the Son of Man. And we'll get to that more next week. 
And so one of the things I'd say here, family, is we're thinking about ourselves as believers in this world that is increasingly given to wickedness, who has exchanged the truth of God for a lie, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. That's language we get in Romans, right? We find ourselves living in that world like Noah, like one of the things we see kind of captured here in very brief order in Noah's character. Look back at verse 5. God preserved Noah, a what? A herald of righteousness. I just put really plainly, like we have to be a people, the people of God committed to declaring, heralding the righteous judgment of God upon sinful man, but the unimaginable righteousness given to those who trust in Jesus Christ. That one day, having trusted in Christ, that all my sin will be forgiven. I'll be clothed not in my own self-righteousness, but in the foreign robes of Jesus' righteousness. Isn't that good news? It's the best news ever. Despite any work that I've done, despite all the wrong I've done, my faith in Christ makes me righteous before God. And so we have to herald that. Like our job is to proclaim and herald that news, the righteous judgment of God and the unimaginable riches of the righteousness of Jesus given to us who call on him by faith. God didn't spare angels. He didn't spare the ancient world. And Peter goes on to say in verse 6, look there with me. He says, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And if you rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Pause there for a second. God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Our current culture and day isn't unlike Sodom and Gomorrah. And Sodom has become kind of synonymous with sexual morality and particular homosexuality. But it, that wasn't the only thing present in Sodom. And let me just read this from Ezekiel looking back at the city of Sodom and see if this rings true of our current cultural moment. He says this, has had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. It's right to think about the sexual morality piece. It's clear when you look at Genesis chapter 18 and 19, but there was pride, there was excess, prosperous ease, and one of the things I'd say here that's said about Lot, now Lot was a little bit of a mess in moments, like it's clear as you read through Genesis, but there's something that's said about him here that's notable. Go back to the text, this parenthetical part right before it. It says that Lot was greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. And it goes on to say that his righteous soul was tormented over living in this culture day by day. Here's one thing I would share with you. I think, it, I think it's really difficult to maintain really firm convictions in a culture that is just hell-bent against God, to hold those convictions really tightly while remaining compassionate. It's really, really difficult. But what's impossible with us is possible with God, right? So as Jesus looked out on the masses who were distressed and in anguish, what was his emotional reaction? Compassion. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He was moved toward them. 
And so my prayer for us is that we would be like Lot, distressed in a sense, anxious over the souls of our neighbors as we see them giving themselves freely to that which is only going to bring about destruction in their lives, that we'd be moved with compassion that would be said of us that our character is different even amongst those in the world who are given to godlessness. Be heartbroken over godlessness, not in a self-righteous way, but in a way that breeds compassion, allowing us to beg people to repent and flee from the wrath of God to come and to find rescue in Jesus. That's our call as God's people. And I think if we're honest, we tend to hear words like wickedness, evil, corruption, violence, and maybe even look out on the world and we think to ourselves like, oh, that's good. I thought you were talking about me. Because I'm not. I mean, I think of corruption. I don't really think of my own heart. I think of wickedness. I think of the headlines in the news. I think of Sodom. I think of Genesis 6, the description of the world. And ah, I don't think we should let ourselves off too easily. Because right? ultimately, even what we do when we take communion is we're, we're settling back into the realities that we are sinners saved by grace. And our hearts are deceitful and wicked. And it's only by the grace of God that we are who we are. If you're leaning in the right direction toward Jesus Christ, it is a miracle that that's the case. And so we can't move beyond this description of wickedness and just somehow apply that label to other people because in some way it robs us of the joy of being amazed by grace against, by the common grace of God, you're not as bad as you could be. And that's true of the world in general. Our behavior may be different than what we see around us in the headlines, but our capacity is the same. And every single one of us, I'm convinced of this, including myself, everybody in here, we are all prone to underestimate and minimize the presence of sin in our own lives. And there's a lot of things that happens when that happens. When we underestimate sin, underestimate God's holiness. We minimize our sin. We minimize how deeply we've broken God's law. And what can happen when we read a section like this is that it can almost make God's judgment seem severe, maybe even unreasonable. Because we've lost a biblical framework for how lost we are and how righteous, like the white hot holiness of God who dwells in unapproachable light. He's perfect. He's supreme. There's no one like him. And he can't, he can't dwell in the presence of wickedness or unrighteousness. But yet he invites sinners to draw near. How can that be? And so... It's good for us to think through the, the great degrees of wickedness in the world, in our own heart. But as we look at this in Genesis, we look at it depicted in Second Peter, great was the wickedness, and as a result, great would be and will be the judgment. Why? Because infinite holiness can't stand idly by in the face of wickedness. This is God. Truth can't look at a lie and consider it acceptable. Righteousness can't rejoice in the presence of immorality. God will be and is offended by wrongdoing. He's grieved by injustice, and he will judge the unrighteous. He took action then, and he will take action now, and he will ultimately take action in the future, and we'll see that culminate next week. If God didn't spare angels 
if God didn't spare the ancient world, if God didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah, Peter wants us to understand he won't spare you if you rebel in unrighteousness against God. And that's hard to hear. That's hard to preach. But that's part of what he's saying here. You see it in in verse 9. Look there with me. He says, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, arguably maybe the ultimate trial of his returning judgment. Keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so we hear that. God didn't spare angels. He didn't spare the ancient world. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. We see ourselves not distant from those places and those examples, but really reflecting the same brokenness. And we can be like, help, like, where do I find hope? Like, this is bleak. And the help is found in this. So let this sink into your heart and cause you to worship. God didn't spare angels. He didn't spare the ancient world. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. He will not spare the unrighteous. But he didn't spare his one and only son but gave him up for us all. That's where you find hope. That's where you find hope. So when you find yourself clamoring for some sense of stability in light of your brokenness and sinfulness, look to Jesus Christ again and again and again. That's where Peter's pushing us. It's the foreign, like even righteous Lot. Like Lot could even be declared righteous because of his faith in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's the only way you will ever be considered righteous is through your faith in Jesus Christ. When we see the lightning of God's judgment, we immediately hear the roaring thunder of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. The certainty of judgment leads us to the comfort of his mercy. And if I could give you this picture as we go into taking a time for the Lord's Supper or move toward the cross, but I'm doing it for a particular reason. If you can think with me just for a second, the picture of the ark, worldwide flood, every single drop of rain, a representation of the wrath of God, a judgment of God upon the world for their rebellion. Every single ounce of the water. And the ark was, the ark was this foreign wooden instrument that caused only Noah and his family to, to raise above the wrath of God that swallowed up everything else. The only thing that protected them was this wooden instrument. And I can imagine myself like being inside the ark. And the closer you move to like the, the walls of the ark, like you'd hear the lap of water, splashing of water. Every single sound would remind you that you have been rescued from the judgment of God. And so as I'm taking steps toward the cross, the cross is the same way. As we take communion, much like if you think about putting your ear up to the, the edge of the ark, the, the closer you move to the cross, the deeper you're reminded of how much you've been spared from the judgment of God and protected by him, literally shielded from the judgment that you deserve because of your sin. The cross of Jesus Christ The ark is like a foreshadowing to the cross. The cross of Christ carries us above, as it were, shields us from the wrath of God that we so justly deserve because of our sin.
So as we come to take the Lord's Supper, it is a deep reminder of that blessed assurance. If you've never trusted in Jesus today, don't come up here taking this, thinking that this will somehow make you right with God. It will not. This is a remembrance of what we know has made us right with God, namely that we have trusted by faith in Jesus. I say this in this way all the time on purpose. The miracle of the gospel, if, you were, if you're not a Christian in this room, the miracle I have for you this morning is if you look to the finished work of Jesus, stop trusting in yourself. The miracle that happens by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone, at the end of your days when you meet God face to face, what you're going to find is that Jesus was treated as if he lived your sinful life. So that when you meet God face to face, you get to be treated as if you live the perfect life of Jesus Christ. That's the miracle of the Christian faith and the gospel. Believe in it today. Trust in Jesus by faith. Church family, for those of you who are believers in this room, enjoy the mercy and the grace of God. Worship him because of it. Herald it in this world. Desperate to see men and women reconciled to him. I'm going to invite you to bow your head with me just for a second. And it's good for us as we take communion. Part of it is to examine our own lives, our own hearts. Maybe to think about just the residue of the world and even false teaching that maybe in ways has affected us, caused us to see truths as lies and lies as truth. And maybe you find yourself in some way railing against the authority of God in your life. And my encouragement would be to acknowledge that before God, that's confession, and to repent, to turn from it, to run to him, not only as your authority, but as your refuge and your strong tower and the only one that can satisfy your soul.